Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Today on the pod, we are talking about journalists. You know, the real old-fashioned gumshoe types with a pad in their hand and a chip on their shoulder. In a bit, we'll hear from New Yorker writer Calvin Trillin talking about his book chronicling the lives of some more, you know, offbeat reporters, which is saying a lot considering who we're talking about here. But first, journalists aren't in the business of myth-making. Quite the opposite, really. And Jeanette Conant's book Fierce Ambition resists waxing nostalgic on some good old days of journalism. It's a biography of Maggie Higgins, an important barrier-breaking war reporter who was the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for foreign correspondence. And yeah, she helped pave the way for a lot of women afterwards. But Conant tells NPR's Mary Louise Kelly that that was just a byproduct of her looking out for herself. That's ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. We're going to spend these next several minutes on the remarkable life of Maggie Higgins. Higgins was the first woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for foreign correspondence. She helped to change war reporting, both what kind of stories journalists were filing and by helping kick open the door for other women. And she is the subject of the new biography, Fierce Ambition, the Life and Legend of War Correspondent Maggie Higgins. The author is Jeanette Conant, and she's with me now. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you open this book with one of her hardest assignments, I suppose certainly the one that made her name, The Liberation of Dachau, the concentration camp where in Germany, 1945, and Maggie Higgins is this cub reporter for the New York Herald Tribune. How did she come to cover Dachau? Well, she was uh, dying to cover the major stories of the war, but women were barred from the combat zone. So she had become increasingly frustrated, cooling her heels behind the lines. And she heard that the camp might be liberated. And she knew it was going to be one of the biggest stories of the war. So she talked a young Stars and Stripes correspondent into uh, letting her ride in his Jeep, and they dashed across occupied territory ahead of the Third Army in hopes of being the first at Dachau. And they made it, and they were among the very first to enter the camp. And it was a truly, you know, gruesome and a terrible spectacle. Yeah, I'm wondering if, I mean, there's nothing that could prepare any human for the sight that awaited them. But for a very young rookie war correspondent, how did she navigate that? How did she capture it in the story that she filed? Well, she had been among the first reporters to enter Buchenwald just a few weeks earlier. So she, in a sense, knew more than even most of the liberating troops because some of them had never been to a concentration camp before. So she steeled herself for the worst, but she said later that nothing could have prepared her, you know, for the sight that awaited them outside the main camp. They came across an abandoned train and there were some 40 uh, cattle cars filled with dead men, women, and children, you know, still in their striped prisoner uniforms. They had been left there to starve to death, to die of the cold. It was a staggering sight, but they had to press on to go further into the camp to liberate the prisoners 
Maggie was one of the first in. The men, half-starved, dying, desperate, of course, were overjoyed to see her. She spoke several languages, and she said, Du bist frei, you're free. And pandemonium ensued. You know, they picked her up. They threw her in the air. They hugged her. They kissed her. I mean, she brought them the news that they had been waiting for. So it was one of the most... uh, emotional, tumultuous moments of the war, and she recorded it on the front pages of the New York Herald Tribune, and the story did make her famous overnight. Yeah. She won the Pulitzer Prize for covering a different war, the Korean War. What stands out to you about how she covered that? What stories she found worth telling? Well, she earned a reputation, uh, starting with Dachau, for sort of reckless disregard for her personal safety. She would insist on going where the action was, on going with the troops and covering the battles. And in Korea, it was particularly dangerous. More correspondents died in a few months of Korea than in the entirety of World War II. It was a very dangerous war. And she kept covering the combat and going right to the front lines And she went into Incheon with the Marines. Uh, She covered the fifth wave. They were trapped against a seawall. The enemy was rolling grenades down. They were harassed by sniper fire. And men fell around her. And miraculously, she survived. And she covered the combat the way very few did. And certainly in Korea, no other woman. So because she was the only woman doing that at a time when women weren't even allowed It was an enormous feat. She won the Pulitzer for her daring dispatches, and the Pulitzer Committee noted that she won it under extraordinary difficult circumstances because she was a woman, Mm. but she did not want that to be what she was known for. She wanted to be seen as a good newspaper man, not woman. So she she didn't want to be distinguished for her sex. I mean, she did, people listening will be gathering why I introduced this by saying she did help kick open the door for other women. And so I was interested to read by your account that other women journalists didn't really seem to like her very much. No, because she was uh, singularly unsisterly. You know, she wanted to be one of the guys. She she wasn't a feminist per se. She just wanted equal opportunity for herself, <laughs> not for her sex. And so uh, she broke down the doors because of her unbridled ambition. She She wanted to be allowed to cover every story the way her competitors were allowed to. And I don't think she was interested in sharing the glory with another woman. I think that said, also, she was very tough, but she wasn't particularly generous, I don't think, in helping uh, the younger generation. But a lot of those pioneering women, you know, they developed very thick skins to get where they were. and They were impatient and tough and very single-minded, focused on their own career, their own mission, and not much else. Her professional success came at a personal cost, and a good deal of your book focuses on her personal life. Why? Why important to include all of that? Because I didn't want to just glamorize the idea of some badass war babe, you know, the fearless, intrepid Maggie Higgins. There was enough of that myth-making in her own lifetime. She suffered a lot because she was unusually attractive for her profession. She was a very beautiful blonde. And it was a very feminine look for a very unfeminine job. And it brought her 
enormous scrutiny, more scrutiny, arguably, than a woman who looked another way might have gotten. And she knew it was partly responsible for her fame. It also was responsible for some of the nastiest, most venomous gossip you can imagine. Her male competitors accused her of advancing on her back. Anything that she did that got her an exclusive or allowed her to beat her competitors was immediately dismissed as uh, something she got, you know, with more than lowered lashes, as they used to say. I wanted to really show how tough it was, the toll that it can take, and how women are just judged for everything from their appearance to their conduct in a way that is just still much tougher than it is for the men. I wonder if she could whisper across generations to the current crop of war correspondents chronicling events in the Middle East, in Ukraine and beyond. What words of advice do you think Maggie Higgins might offer? (laughs) I think she would tell them, don't listen, don't care, don't let it stop you. Because I think that's what distinguishes Maggie more than anything. Uh, She Mm. had this ferocious ambition. And she didn't let all the abuse that she had to take keep her from her goals. And she achieved them. Jeanette Conant is the author of Fierce Ambition, The Life and Legend of War Correspondent Maggie Higgins. Thank you. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. All right. Well, Conant did cover some of the darker aspects of the job. Being a reporter can be fun as hell. NPR's Scott Simon spoke to Calvin Trillin about his book, The Lead, about a handful of different reporters. And I think from this interview, you can tell that it's a point of pride for Trillin that reporters tend to be the kind of raggedy bunch who don't really look comfortable at fancy pants events. The news about news, about the business of journalism, is filled with layoffs, buyouts, and bankruptcies. The Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, Time, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal, we could go on. What a time for Calvin Trillin, the fabled author, humorist, and New Yorker writer, to come out with a collection of some of his reporting on reporters over the years. Crime beat chroniclers, eccentric editors, word lyricists, columnists, and more. His new collection, The Lead, L-E-D-E. That expression in journalism for an opening paragraph, dispatches from a life in the press. Calvin Trillin joins us now from New York. Mr. Trillin, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I learned in this collection that we share one practical skill, and it, I, speaking for myself, it's the only practical skill I have. I can't even drive a car, and that's typing. Yes, I'm a wizard at the typewriter. Or I make a lot of mistakes, but uh, I type very quickly. That's because my father in Kansas City, where I grew up, uh, when the schools ended rather early one year because they ran out of money, he sent me and my sister to uh, secretarial school. I, I used to think of my father's aspirations 
for me as uh, he wanted me to be president of the United States and that I not become a ward of the county. But uh, neither one of those required typing. So I like to think maybe he was pushing me toward journalism. Yeah. Wonderful profile in this collection of um, Edna Buchanan, the longtime police beat reporter in Miami. Uh, maybe her best-known book is The Corpse Had a Familiar Face. What made her a great crime reporter? She was relentless. She was asking questions after you thought that the conversation was over. And uh, she talked to me once about calling the uh, next of kin of somebody who had just been murdered. Mm -hmm. And if somebody accused her of being just a ghoul and a vulture for calling at such a time and hung up on her, she counted to 60. And then she called again. Uh, she figured that by that time... Somebody might have said, you should have talked to that reporter, or maybe yeah. somebody else would answer the phone who was more talkative. You um, also have a long, good section on R.W. Johnny Apple of the New York Times. Respected and feared political reporter for years, had been a war correspondent in Vietnam. He eventually became best known in his later years for inventing would it be fair to call it the most envied, beaten journalism? <laughs> I think that would be fair. He also, in addition to the envied beat, he had an envied expense account. Yeah. Well, it. it I mean, it struck me. Of course. I mean, you you were have have been famous also for uh, writing about food, but it's often Kansas City barbecue places or Texas barbecue places. Johnny Apple ranged around the world writing about food and uh, often not in humble barbecue places. No, the, he entered the places. I, I think the, when people talked about Apple, uh, when he entered one of those restaurants, uh, the verb they usually used was he swept in. He, he wasn't one of those shy food people who don't want you to know that they're there. And wh what do you think we can learn from Johnny Apple in journalism today? Well, it's a, it's a different business, of course, and, and uh, Johnny, uh, in, a, in a way, was at sort of beginning of, of, of the new business because uh, in the old days, people thought of newspaper reporters as guys with uh, a bottle of bourbon in the lower right-hand drawer and a sort of a greasy hat and a notebook. And then sooner or later, journalists got to be people who had, like Johnny, uh, gone to Princeton. Although I have to say he never graduated. He was the editor of the paper, and he thought that being the editor of the paper was in lieu of going to class or writing papers or anything like that. What do you think about journalism these days? Well, it's a different game. I think about how many reporters, say, I don't know, the Baltimore Sun or the uh, Washington Post has at City Hall. And there's a big difference. Uh, and w on the other hand, there are a lot of people with various uh, ways of communicating that we didn't used to have. I, I don't know how I would have felt about it when I was first starting out, when I worked for Time Magazine in the South. Also, also it's, it sort of turned reporters into wire service reporters because it could be in the digital at any time, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, I'm not sure it would have been as appealing to me as, as it was. On the other hand, I'm not sure that it would have been appealing to me if there hadn't been a subject that dominated 
what, what I was writing about. And in my case, it was the uh, desegregation struggle in the South. Yeah, the civil rights movement. Yeah. yeah. You uh, you mentioned Johnny Apple going to Princeton, and of course you were at Yale. Should there be more journalists with greasy hats and bourbon in their drawers? Well, I hadn't thought that. Of that sounds vaguely dirty. And <laughs> bourbon in the bottom the drawer desk, of their desk. That's right. Uh, I, I once uh, published a, tra- a book on travel, and there are various stories in it, and some reviewers said, apparently not knowing as much as Johnny Apple knew about expense accounts, that uh, these trips were available only to someone like the author uh, who's in the upper middle class. And uh, I called my sister in Kansas City and said, we finally made it. Uh, <laughs> I think when reporters get too full of themselves, for instance, it's something like the uh, gridiron dinner when they invite celebrities and everything like that. Even though they had have a tux on, uh, they're they're really somewhere between the people who own the tux uh, and the guy who's doing valet parking. Reporters, they're not a very classy bunch. They're often asked to leave places, and they uh, interrupt people when when the people are trying to do their job. So. I, I think somewhere in the middle. Calvin Trillin, his new collection, The Lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Audrey Wynn, Megan Kane, Todd Munt, Emiko Tamagawa, Shannon Rhodes, Erica Ryan, Justine Kennan, Ed McNulty, and Danny Hensel. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.